to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Markle. I'm a curriculum development specialist here at NCBRT, and I work in collaboration with subject matter experts to create valuable and timely training for the responder community. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Jerry Boitala and Steve Mondernock about COVID-19's impact on supply and demand in the food industry. Aside from uh, these safety issues that we've discussed, there's also uh, a huge concern about how COVID has affected supply and demand of certain foods. So to start us off, what is the effect of plant closures on food supply? Well, in this consolidated system, one plant closing can greatly impact the supply of uh, that commodity area for uh, for the nation. Um, you know, when one plant produces a you know, four or five, six percent of the of the product for the country, um, you can hit that. In addition, when it comes to ingredients, there are some ingredients that literally there may be one supplier that supplies the whole country for. In addition, there's some other complexities. Um, ethanol production was greatly reduced during this period of time because it wasn't the need for fuel. The problem is we largely rely on a byproduct of ethanol, CO2, for the food industry. So suddenly CO2 became very, very hard to source because their traditional supplier was no longer available. Um, and so there's things like that that are going to have a long-term impact on us thinking more carefully about do we have a real alternative backup supplier. Um, and that became a pretty, an issue very, very quickly. Um, now we were able to find some alternatives where they could ramp up production, but um, not something anyone expected to happen. Uh, and particularly not as quickly as it happened. It was, you know, that was becoming a big issue by mid-March, um, which shows you how fast that uh, that really ramped up and became a challenge. Um, you know, so plant closures definitely are going to have a have a long-term effect. The other things to think about, transportation was not as easy. We're used to transporting food across this country very quickly. Um, you know, let's just pretend, you know, the state of X decides anyone that drives into this state is going to have to stay for a week. Okay, that has potential impact. You know, the good news is for the most part, people were somewhat flexible in many regions of the country, but that had huge impact uh, potential too. Not to mention some of those, uh, you know, folks that are doing transportation were probably equally concerned. Do I want to be going into all these places and going and exposing myself um, to all the potential for contamination? So all of those things really make this a complex industry that um, with so many different inputs that makes it uh, easy for one piece to fall off and suddenly we can't produce what the consumer is looking for. You know, in, in addition to plant closures, um, you know, early on there was uh, demands on, uh, obviously, on production. And so in some cases, um, because there was a drop in demand for certain things that go to restaurants, for example, uh, potatoes for french fries, um, then that caused uh, a lot of crops to be plowed under because it, there was no place to send those. There was no storage. There was no demand. There was no monetary incentive to do that. Um, and so that's why we saw uh, you know, potatoes being plowed under or berries, for example, where certain berries are, are raised for fresh uh, sales and others are uh, raised for uh, specifically for being frozen and putting into uh, into the freezers, and so if the demand dropped in restaurants for uh, or in grocery stores for for fresh berries, then 
it didn't make monetary sense to you know send those to a freezer. No, number one, the freezers were full, and number two, there was too much input into that uh, product, and the harvesting costs alone would have outweighed um, uh, you know harvesting and, and trying to find a place for those berries. And so we saw those examples over and over, especially early on. You know when the immediate supply and demand started fluctuating. Um, there were a lot of examples of that in milk being dumped, for example, uh, because there was no, uh, there was a loss in demand immediately from, you know, schools closed. A lot of milk goes into schools, uh, a lot of cheese and ice cream go to restaurants. So there was uh, the supply, just there was nowhere to, to send that the supply bottlenecked. And so back at the production end, a lot of that food had to be destroyed. Uh, another complexity was, um, you know, we think of it as uh, just the food moving through the process, but the workers moved through the process. So the transient harvest workers across the, the country that often are brought from other countries, harvest crops, you know, work through a cycle, housing those workers. What do we do with uh, those? Uh, how do we do this so that we don't end up with small outbreaks of those workers? Uh, that's another piece of the puzzle is if you can't get the worker at exactly the right time to harvest your crop, your crop is no longer really viable um, for the food market. Um, you know, consumers expect a perfect or near perfect strawberry, raspberry, etc. If it's not, you're probably not going to be able to sell it. Um, so those are just uh, another piece of complexity is that huge workforce issue. And I know across the country that was a giant challenge. And, you know, I, I give a lot of folks a lot of credit for thinking about how to do that, uh, particularly, um, you know, now there's lots of plans in place. Uh, but on day one, there definitely wasn't for what happens if we end up with an outbreak amongst our temporary farm workers that are harvesting. Um, so that's a, a giant new area that we hadn't thought of um, either that impacts the supply chain greatly. You both mentioned certain types of food. Um, the demand has increased. What are these, um, what are the types of food that have increased in demand and decreased? Uh, so I, I think it's maybe not as much the types as it is the source. So demand for food that goes through the grocery uh, uh, aisle is much greater. Now, some of that might be, um, you know, I think I would venture a guess that when we get through this, we're going to find frozen foods. The demand has gone up greatly, um, I suspect, just because little bit I'm seeing in the grocery store, that seems to be an ongoing product that's challenging to, uh, it's hard to buy a frozen pizza in some places, hard to believe. Uh, but seriously, that is something that's moving very quickly. Um, those sorts of things, um, uh, it seems like, are going through. Uh, dairy, definitely a higher usage, uh, seemed to have been a hard thing to keep in stock in grocery shelves, uh, whether it be cheese, you know, those sorts of things. So I suspect a lot more of that is now going through the retail sector, when I say the grocery industry, than the food service world. And, and re re revamping to that production has been a challenge. Um, you know, the, for the most part, um, pretty much everything you know, it was a much larger use of the grocery market um, than what we had seen. So there have been temporary um, winners and losers in that process. If you were a, a an operation largely, you know, that focused on the food service industry, you're probably a loser. Um, in my, uh, I live in Philadelphia. Um, so one of the small suppliers that focus on the food service industry now is advertising every day on Facebook that they'll deliver. In some cases, I can buy prime steaks, have it delivered to me 
and literally uh, and those sorts of things um, from the person that's supplying, you know, the restaurant down the street uh, or the fine steakhouse, um, that, that sort of thing. So they're trying to be creative. But if you were a small business, you know, that's going to be hard to make that up and keep even some staff on uh, employed um, doing that sort of thing. Um, you know, there's lots of the small folks that do supply into the restaurant wall too, and they're definitely having challenges right now. Uh, probably another thing to think about is complex ingredients. So when I, it's complex items. So those things that are really for the specialty market that is restaurants, that you're gonna find less use through the grocery industry and, and probably not as much production. Probably the prime steak is an example. That's largely sold through restaurants and so not so much through the grocery industry. In fact, you know, most grocery stores don't even stock a prime steak. Um, so that's a good example of something that will be different. So uh, there again, the food, uh, the food processor, the slaughterhouse that's making a, that is doing prime product probably is not getting prime rate on that product because they probably can't sell it that way. So there's some other things like that that are impacting supply too. And there will be a delay. You know, if you're a farmer, for example, you have to make a decision about, um, you know, what type of crop you're going to plant for what type of, uh, uh, um, you know, ultimate uh, use. And so, you know, are you going to be uh, growing or, or, or raising something that's meant for a uh, restaurant industry? Well, you've got to make a decision. And, you know, as we know, uh, you know, if as states start opening back up and, People are really itching to get out and, and resume, you know, some semblance of normality. Uh, you know, people are going to want to go to restaurants and go to bars and go and do what they used to do. But, you know, we may see that maybe the availability of some of the things. Uh, in fact, we heard about some restaurants saying that, you know, when, as we slowly do open back up, our, our menus will be limited. So please bear with us. Uh, because again, it, it's just going to depend on, on the availability, you know, and is there enough, uh, you know, as Steve mentioned, uh, you know, prime steaks, uh, you know, are mostly destined for restaurants. And so, you know, is there, is there enough in the pipeline? Can restaurants, you know, get back to, to, to that? Um, and will there be a glitch down the road when, you know, if a farmer decides that they're going to be now, uh, you know, looking at some other, um, outcome for their for their uh, cattle. Well, and I think there's a, a another piece to this puzzle um, that's probably two years down the road from us that we're going to probably start seeing. Um, so typically, at the production end, you are adjusting quickly um, to what the marketplace is. Let's just use a product like corn, for example. Are you going to, if you're a farmer, are you going to be producing a lot of corn right now, knowing that the you know, the meat industry is at a downward point uh, overall, at least for ability to sell your your uh, meat products into the market that you normally use in corn to feed. Um, uh, corn price is moderate at best, probably low would be the best way to put it. Uh, are you going to change your production strategy because of that? And what does, and oh, and there's no ethanol market. Another huge market for corn. Can't forget that. Well, with all of those things in the factor, what does that do two years from now? because farmers will start making their decisions on what they're going to plant next year, this fall, those prices aren't back, the corn produced will go way down, and then it has an alternate impact on forcing prices of many other things up um, as we get to it. So it, it's gonna, you know, I, I, regretfully, I, I don't think we're gonna 
see a lot of some of the impacts for another year or two years, uh, probably because of this and it's uh, with its cyclical nature. The other thing is how easy is it going to be to export your raw uh, crop commodities that are going for food elsewhere? Um, is you know I, I think some of the trade implications with that started with COVID nineteen. You know, uh, will soybeans from the Midwest really be going to China at the large rate they were, or, or to other places in Asia? Uh, that's going to be something, you know, you've got to wonder if um, some of these trade, uh, some of there isn't going to be some retaliation that's going to even more dramatically impact agriculture than it has already. Um, and then that shifts the market, and then suddenly someone else's soybeans get bought and shipped there, and then we do something new in those regions of the country. So obviously we're living in an unprecedented time and many of us are dealing with something that's entirely new to us. So um, from your perspective, has the food industry ever experienced a disruption of this magnitude since you've begun working in this industry? And if so, can you give us some examples of what's happened? Boy, nothing, I would say nothing during my lifetime. Um, you know, if we we're going to go back in history, you're probably looking at the next closest thing being the turn of the, you know, 1900-ish when, um, you know, you have the jungle written and we start seeing regulation uh, of the food industry. Um, that's probably the next most significant change in the industry overall to today. Uh, Jerry, you, idiot, what's your thought? Well, I wasn't around at the, in in nineteen hundred, Steve, but <laughs> but uh, clearly I was. <laughs> uh, no, I, I I think, and I in a lot of what I've read and, and seen, I agree with in that this this is a major dis, uh, historic disruption, and and we've not seen the total impact of what this will have. Um, a lot of uh, you know, like I said, uh, a lot of dis smaller disruptions, you know, cause some, some fluctuation in markets or cause, you know, some consumer behaviors, but this will, um, will have lasting uh, impact. And some of the things that have, have started, for example, you know, home delivery was something that was starting to be on an uptick and maybe we'll see a, a drastic increase and in, maybe something else will come along. So I think, um, you know, there's opportunity for innovation here. And I think that's what typically you'll see in in uh, in markets is that uh, some new things will happen that we didn't even think of, and people will take advantage of new consumer demands. I would say that uh, this is probably from one event in such a short period of time would uh, we've probably never seen something uh, this disruptive. And so there there will be losers, there will be winners, there will. But one thing is for certain: we will all do something a little bit differently than we did before. And those that are able to adapt and adapt quickly will, will be more successful. Um, those that are, have less ability to adapt will be less successful. This is, uh, again, the system is, is built uh, for just in time and, and things start early in the system. And so when farmers are planting certain crops or they're raising certain animals, it's for a certain purpose. So when that purpose then all of a sudden changes, the system bottlenecks or contracts aren't uh, able to be found. Uh, in fact, relationships are often and contracts are often set and early on and, uh, and can't, you know, new buyers can't quickly be found. And so, so one of the immediate things that happened early on in, in, in April was all the reports we saw of 
you know, cattle or hogs being killed, chickens being killed uh, because the egg supply was was bottlenecked. And, you know, you, you chickens are going to be laying eggs all day long. And so uh, you've got to do something. Uh, and the eggs just can't be kept, uh, you know, as the chickens are growing and, and, and evolving uh, <clears throat> in terms of their life cycle. Uh, you have to depopulate it at some point. And so we saw that early on. We saw crops uh, being plowed under. We saw milk being dumped. Again, these were just immediate impacts of of uh, a lack of demand and then lack of infrastructure to then uh, deal with this uh, this bottleneck and this pent up uh, supply. So I think there were many examples uh, of that happening. Luckily, the markets adjusted, the food supply chain adjusted. And um, things are a little better now, a couple of months in. But initially, I think that people will look back at, at those lessons learned and say, okay, for the next time, how can we uh, strengthen the supply chain so that we can deal with some of this earlier? I think you'll see um, uh, coming out of this, uh, as you do any, any emergency, <clears throat> kind of a after action, what can we do to, <clears throat> to make things go a little faster? No. So I... One interesting thing is this impacted, uh, so the height of the COVID was really during Easter. That is one of the two high periods for shell eggs. The shell, uh, when you're a shell egg producer, you produce to have your highest uh, amount of shell eggs available for Easter and then for between Thanksgiving to Christmas, the two predominant usage periods of that. So you build your flocks coming online at the highest production rate during those two periods of time. Well, let's just be honest, there really, there was an Easter, but there wasn't Easter in a traditional sense in most places. So you just didn't see that level of usage. So you ended up with a, a large uh, scale need for de depopulation. The other thing is our, our animals and our food is produced for a very, very specific purpose. A layer hen is not going to be valuable in the meat world. You're not going to use a layer hen for chicken. Uh, that, that's not what they're produced for. And if you look at a layer head and ever see one in a production uh, in a, a egg farm, you can see this. They do, they're built for, for that purpose. They're, they're bred to lay eggs, not to you know, uh, be a meat animal. So that makes it very different, just like cogs are very much you know, the desirable qualities for whoever you're sending them to. You're breeding them for that purpose, and you're really focusing on those traits. So, you know, in some ways, we're victims of our success in building very specialized animals and plants, essentially for one exact purpose. But the problem is, if that purpose isn't available, then we don't have a lot of route for it to be used for, for other purposes. And another thing you saw early on was that the federal government had to step in and, um, and actually purchase a lot of, uh, of uh, commodities. Uh, you know, and send it to food banks and, and, and those types of programs. Um, and that could not have happened without the, the government coming in and doing that. And the, um, uh, you know, Defense Production Act was invoked and uh, loans were issued. And, and, you know, when you think about it, if a farmer is dumping milk and you say, well, why don't you give that to the needy? Well, then the farmer has a, a cost you know, to transport that milk. And, and so there's, it, it doesn't make sense because the farmer can't afford to do that. And so the federal government had to step in at that point. And um, so that's just another lesson learned, I think, in, 
looking back at this. Well, not to mention, you know, the food banks, for example, don't have a lot of refrigerator storage. They have no ability to, to pasteurize milk or, or to make it into further process for other things. So it's much more complex than just providing them with the, the commodity. And that's been the real challenge. And when you talk to some of the, the, the food bank community, uh, one of their big things is we just don't have refrigerator space. So you can give us all the perishables you want. We're probably not even going to be able to distribute them fast enough so that we can, uh, so that they, they don't, um, lose their quality or their safety. Very, a very interesting, challenging time for, for food banks. Not to mention food banks also receive a lot of their product from the manufacturers that have excess capacity. Um, and that really wasn't happening for most manufacturers. You weren't seeing a lot of excess capacity in the food manufacturing lines. At least that would have been labeled for food bank purposes where they would, would have been easily gone into. Often it was the food service sort of lines that had capacity, but that would not necessarily work in a food bank scenario. We touched on this a little bit earlier, so let me know if you think we've covered this completely. Um, how has the evolution of supply chain management affected this situation? So this is going to be contrary to capitalism. Some amount of inefficiency is good. And when you become too efficient, you actually add risk into the market. Um, I think is what we probably have learned in this, is we've become very, very efficient in how we supply food, but that may actually have risks associated with it too, uh, more than what we probably ever recognize. We never imagined the whole country would largely shut down for a period of months. That was not even possible in most of our wildest dreams, yet it happened. So it was very, uh, it has changed um, our thoughts on that. So uh, that might be something to think a little bit about is, you know, uh, too much efficiency can hurt resilience, I guess. I think another thing, if you look at the supply chain and if you look down the chain, you see buyers. And if you look up the chain, you see suppliers. And typically, um, uh, people want to keep it kind of a secret of who their buyers are and who their suppliers are. And so there's not a lot of transparency. Um, and that, I think, was one of the lessons learned here is that, you know, there couldn't be a, a quick adjustment to find other buyers or find other suppliers. So I think that's one thing we'll see come out of this is um, maybe more transparency. Uh, but you can do, you know, there's still that uh, trade secret kind of thing that, that people are concerned about. But in terms of transparency, I think we'll see more uh, things like blockchain and electronic uh, information uh, being sent up and down the chain that might help in, in that regard, uh, because now we can kind of keep those uh, confidential uh, between buyers and suppliers, but still be able to quickly pivot and find um, find new buyers or new suppliers. So we like to end our discussion with a look forward. So as COVID begins to slow down and businesses open up again, as we're seeing, what will be the lasting impacts of COVID-19 that the food industry will have to grapple with going forward? I think one of the immediate things that we'll see is the impact um, in terms of job loss and, uh, and also as a result of that, uh, also uh, uh, the loss of businesses. And so that's probably going to be the first impact that we see is, is uh, loss of business, uh, closure of restaurants, for example, the restaurants that don't ever open back up. 
So all the disruptions that have taken place, we may see less consolidation. We may see more consolidation in some other aspects. Things will not be the same, uh, but, uh, but things will evolve. And again, demand will change. Consumer demand will change. I think as states open back up, you know, there will gradually be an increase in demand on the restaurant side. And so, you know, the whole supply chain will adjust to that. So there, the question will be how quickly can, can, uh, can the system adjust? Uh, there will be new trends and there will be new food products and new demands from consumers and uh, new services uh, that are offered as a result of, of uh, lessons learned. Delivery is definitely something that I think will not change. I mean, uh, I think uh, this has taken you know grocery delivery from a relatively small portion of the consumers to you know beyond capacity to what you could do. So both delivery and grocery pickup is going to be something that we don't that we see continue. People have realized the convenience of it, and they're not going to change that. Their likelihood of going to the grocery store shopping shopping uh, is probably less than what it was and more likely to use pick up or delivery. So that's one thing. Um, definitely, there's going to be a contraction in the food service restaurant industry. Uh, you know, on 50% or less uh, dining ability and a questionable on whether the consumer is going to come back very quickly, um, you just don't see that change. Not to mention, you know, most restaurants had very small amount of reserves in place. They're not going to, you know, if you were one of those places, you're probably not coming back into business. Uh, you're, you've probably, uh, your opportunity has ended by having been closed for three months. Um, so that's going to be a giant challenge. And even some of the big, I mean, we've seen chains closing. A couple of chains uh, on the West Coast have closed already. I suspect we'll see others not make it through this process um, very quickly. Um, next, uh, another impact is those things that are related to hospitality and travel. Are probably going to have some long-term impacts here. Uh, I suspect, uh, you know, many people will think twice about doing going into a very uh, public, large crowd scenario for an extended period of time. All those festivals that we would normally go to all summer, I, I don't believe we're going to see very many of those. State fairs are being canceled. Uh, I know Minnesota's already canceled theirs. I know some other states are trying to decide what they're going to do. Um, you know, that's that's completely, that's a huge industry for those parts of the country for a period of time, but those are going away. So some of those type things won't happen uh, this year. And that may indeed have people leaving the business for a period of, or, or not able to continue in the business. Um, so there are lots of um, those things that will happen over time. But um, on the other hand, uh, there are some really good things that have resulted uh, potentially too. I, you know, what we figured out is we can have a complete disruption and people can go forward and still eat. And we don't have large scale um, unavailability of food, which is huge. Um, I, I don't know that we would have ever expected it to work this well as it really did. I mean, so that is the, the, the positive note is it's worked well. Um, the other giant risk that's still out there is what happens if we have to go to a second level of closure, which is entirely possible. Um, you know, what happens if this fall we really see a gigantic spike again and we literally have to close cities and regions of the country or the whole country again? Um, that's when we hit huge impact that even those people that survived round one may not survive round two. 
Um, so those are some things to think about um, too. Um, and planning for that, um, you know, that's one of the things, you know, if you're a restaurateur, how do you adapt yourself so that you can more readily handle the situation if we have this continue for an extended period of time? Whatever business, but restaurateurs, I think, have probably a more challenging spot in the market. How do we, you know, most of those businesses are meant to be as crowded as possible to have the people close together to get the most number of people in the seats. And that's part of their profit uh, of how they make, uh, how they, uh, their model, how they make profit. Will that be the case going forward? And will we do things differently? Um, you know, you, you've got to wonder some of the casual dining market uh, that has been having challenges already. Will this make it more challenging for them? So what are some of the lessons learned about the response to COVID-19 in the food sector? From a regulatory perspective, I would say uh, don't wait for the federal government for advice. Um, I, I think at some point you've got to make some best decisions, use your academic folks, use your best guess on what it is and get it out there faster than later. Waiting can be a problem. Um, and, you know, I, I think we saw... Part of the reason we have a haphazard type of reopening of the uh, of restaurants right now is because there was no early guidance. Um, I, I think that was a mistake, and why it's so confusing between uh, each part of the country and each state, and sometimes each county or city. Um, that that's probably not a good thing. Um, so, you know, I would say early guidance um, is helpful. Um, you know, had we done better at getting early guidance on PPP or PPE food manufacturers. You know, that would have been better. I mean, you know, once we knew it was aerosolized, why did we say mask a little earlier? I mean, how many people could have been saved if we said mask a little earlier? Um, you know, and it wasn't exactly rocket science. Um, so that's something to think about. Um, are there some things that we could definitely do better on that? Um, and then, frankly, had we been a little more perceptive on the front end and realized, huh, there's a big issue in China. Maybe we should start looking at this a little sooner. Um, and I say that that's across the community. I mean, clearly, you know, if you were a multinational food company, you knew there was a big issue in China in November and December. Well, I'm not sure that hit home. Uh, and you really start thinking about, well, this could come here. What? Are, how do we need to think about this? And what are our risks here? So those are things that we could probably uh, do better. But on the other hand, we did pretty we did pretty well. Everyone got food for the most part. You got normally what you wanted um or pretty close to it and you know we managed to close down almost the whole country for a period of over two months and not have any major result and when i say that you know no huge bad result in it. not to say that there aren't individualized bad results but for the most part uh, we were successful in that, and that's pretty amazing that we could do that quickly. And not to mention, you know, a huge sector of the economy continued. When a food sector is one example because of the need, particularly in the manufacturing and supply chains or manufacturing and grocery industry, but also much of the rest of the country continued. Um, you know, we found that we don't need you to be in your office sitting at your desk to be efficient and produce. Um, that was a surprise for some people. Uh, and will be a change forever, which could also impact center cities and business districts across the country. Uh, we may see fewer office spaces and all the things that support those too, going, which impacts food too. 
Sorry, Jerry, I, I can go on forever. Oh, that's, you know, that's that was perfect. In fact, I'm gonna just not, I'm just gonna leave it there with you because that was that was a great uh, wrap up. Is there anything that maybe I didn't ask that is on your mind that you want to mention as a final thought here? I, I think just kind of to, if you were to sum it up, I think um, one of the big things was that one one of the big things we learned was that um, that there was enough food. And so it wasn't that in the end, um, the food wasn't available for, for the public. And so that was, I think, a, a pretty good lesson learned is that um, there was plenty of food. It was just that maybe certain types of food or um, types of food that we wanted weren't available, but that, that food itself was not scarce. Um, and that was kind of a testament to our food supply in general. So yeah, things will will tweak get tweaked a little bit, and uh, and there may be some different ways of doing things. But maybe one of the big lessons is that um, you know the system worked. It was it you know had a little uh, bumps along the way, but we'll learn from that as well. Like in any emergency, we go back and look at how to improve, and I think you'll see that things will get uh, a little quicker if if this happens again, and things will adjust. But uh, the good news is that uh, the food supply itself was not um, was not cut off and it was uh, was not impacted, uh, and so that's I guess one one good thing. I, I, I'm going to say something that's kind of odd. I suspect a majority of the population now knows what what an epidemiologist is. That is something <laughs> they probably didn't know uh, three months ago. And the other side of that is I think there's some added respect for the profession of public health and their importance at least by majority of the American population. So that's probably not a bad thing. It may actually help us in future um, uh, public health uh, cases. It, it's amazing how now at every TV station we now see epidemiologists constantly on the air. That's a huge change and, and kind of exciting. And it helps uh, the general public understand risk a little bit. And I think that's a hard concept sometimes for the public, that there is risk and um and there's ways of uh, making decisions to, to lessen your risk. And I think another big thing people learned was how to sing the happy birthday song when they're washing their hands. Well, and actually, I think it will spawn some better technology in hand washing. Uh, sure. I really do, and particularly in some public settings where that's not there. I mean, I think we could see that um, in, in, you know, ball fields and those sort of things, when I say that, you know, large event venues where we have automated sinks that literally go for that period of time, et cetera. Uh, and some other changes that uh, we wouldn't have expected, but this will do um, some changes. So, once again, it's still exciting that you know everyone largely was able to eat and could get the food they needed, largely wanted. That's pretty amazing. Absolutely. Thank you to Jerry and Steve for coming on the podcast to share your knowledge with us today. If you have any questions or topic suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email at podcast at ncbrt.lsu.edu. Make sure you subscribe to the LSU NCBRT Preparedness Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and we'll see you again next week.